It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Hey, Chris. Hey, Andrew. How's, how's your day going? Um, my day has been pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, dealing with uh, fires online. But mm. um, we, We'll talk about it some other time, but you tried to cancel yourself again. <laughs> yeah, I wrote something that people had responses to. We won't even give it away. Just go to Evening Sends. Yeah. Check it out. But we're not talking about that tonight because nope. we've got a more important old school climbing uh, debacle to dive into and it, as per our usual style of doing it without much real reporting original reporting or really information other than what we've read online not journalists well i'm a journalist but not on this show in this capacity yeah this this is my this is this is andrew bisher at after hours yeah exactly <laughs> literally <laughs> at this point <laughs> But I had a question for you uh, okay, to get shoot. us going. So let's say that you were out at a crag that you've you know, established a few roots at, some of the roots that you're maybe most proud of in your life. And you look over and you see me up on the wall, just absolutely chopping the shit out of your bolts and destroying mm -hmm. your root. What would you do? Well, I wish I had like a, you know, a clever, funny answer that I would like go and down and shit in your backpack or something like that. <laughs> um, but the truth is, is if I had my phone, I would take footage of it and then I would blast that, that footage out. Um, and I, you know, the, the funny thing is, is I'm, I'm extremely, I'm very, uh, confrontation averse because I have to, to either I, either I don't want to confront someone or when I do, I like, you know, it's like zero to 60. I don't really have a very good in between. And so I avoid it quite a bit. So I don't know if I would like try to meet them at their car or something like that. I mean, I would, you know, I would definitely try to engage them in conversation and be like, what the fuck are you guys doing and well, why? But I think the the footage thing would be the, the thing I think would be the most effective because I think, I mean, the public opinion in climbing is is definitely heavily, heavily against that kind of activity and and i'll say that because most people try to do it either anonymously or in the cover of you know being alone and, and there's a reason for that well that's a nice answer chris and it's complete Thanks. horseshit because what? i've seen you uh go go to go to z go to 60 miles per hour right out of the gate and i think that's exactly what you would do i think it, <laughs> that you would be like right up in my face yelling at me <laughs> confronting me and uh well, you know, swinging yeah. and kicking and and <laughs> if if my face just happened to be in the way then it's my fault well i mean i don't know it'd be a tricky thing if it was you i don't know that that's a whole another thing i'd be like dude the fuck i thought we were friends yeah <laughs> you're yeah. breaking my heart yeah you might cry if you saw anyway that. why are why are you asking me all this? right we're okay well this is a long way to get into um a little bolting debacle that took place on Pikes Peak here in Colorado, mm -hmm. uh, which has been reported on in a really great way, I thought, by uh, Corey Buhe, who, uh, and sorry, Corey, if I'm pronouncing your last name wrong, but she's a, a journalist, Bowie, maybe. maybe. 
she's a rad ice climber, great adventure climber, um, and a writer right now. And she, I thought she did a great job with the story, but she, she put out a story on climbing.com about this little tiff between two sets of climbers, a couple of old school climbers and a couple of new school climbers who had kind of have a, um, a little back and forth about what the future of climbing is on Pike's peak. And so I thought we could like kind of go through this article and just kind of discuss what, what we think about it. So, well, in addition, there, there was a very lengthy post on the Pike's peak climber org site, which also in, in the reason I, I mentioned how long it was is because there's a lot, a lot of information in this post, which, you know, by internet standards is asking a lot of people to get all the way through it. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting and also speaks to how sort of nuanced the, uh, the issue is and, yeah. and why it's nuanced is, is maybe why we're going to get into it. So just to give you folks the general depiction of what's happening here, we've got two guys, Noah McLevin and Phil Wartman, who are kind of putting up these Alpine trad lines. They're kind of mixed lines with bolts. They're putting pitons in. And they're putting up routes in the like kind of 513A, 513B range. One of their routes was chopped by the, you know, the so-called detractors, which are two guys named Bo Parsons and Brad Sarin, uh, longtime Colorado Springs climbers. One of them was the founder of that Pikes Peak Climber Alliance, but it sounds like he's no longer part of that group. He um, definitely didn't write that uh, that piece. <laughs> <laughs> that I no, read, and, so and he must not be there anymore. They distanced themselves from him on their Facebook page too, which I saw. Right. So anyway, you know, there was kind of heated argument that took place over the course of an hour and a half between two of these guys as Yeah, it's important know, to point that that scenario we started with happened. Yeah, it happened. That's why we brought it up. That that uh that th- these people were, you know, in proximity to one another when this was all going down. So it sounds like Brad Sarin was chopping one of McLevin's roots. And so over the course of an hour and a half, they kind of like got into an argument. And I've seen some footage of this like tiff that they had, and it was pretty dramatic and heated to watch. And so I found this fascinating in part because I really don't know what I would do if, (laughs) if I saw someone just like blatantly out in the open chopping my root and got into an argument with him about that. So I found that interesting. I thought we could lead with that discussion about what, what the appropriate measure is. If you happen to walk up to your favorite crag, even if you're not a first ascensionist and you just see someone like removing bolts, like what's the appropriate behavior in that case? I mean, I have no idea. And I I imagine that the chopper was quite uh, probably like, the part of the heatedness was is that he was probably pretty surprised to suddenly get confronted by the person that put those bolts in. Um, I would imagine again, like mostly chopping goes on in a way that, you know, keeps it out of the spotlight or the people oftentimes, you know, want to remain anonymous because they know what, what they're doing is a bit egregious. So, um, so that part of it, I, I would have loved to have been in the dude's head when all of a sudden he looked over and there's the guy that put the bolts in staring at him from across the wall. I bet that was a bit of a surprise. <laughs> he, he seemed, he, from what I remember from the video, it's been a few weeks since I've seen it, but it, he, from my memory, he got quite angry and kind of brought that like energy of like, don't fuck with me and I'm doing this. And 
Yeah, totally. Like, uh, and plus like he sil- also had silverback thing, ham- a hammer in his hand, you know, and like yeah. he had like tools, and so it was already a threatening situation. They were running uh, battery powered, um, like uh, angle grinders too. Okay, which is another implement of destruction when it comes to cutting bolts in the modern age. I've that never you understood take... that because can't you just like unscrew a bolt? Well, if you if run into like a, a glue and you can chop it off. If it's a glue and you have to, yeah, you have to bring out the angle grinder. But if it's and if it's, if a, it's, just if it's a, a, a power like bolt with a thread, then you can literally just unscrew it. Well, that's true. But if you but the, a person could just go back and screw a new one in. And if it's a wedge bolt and uh, the hole isn't so deep, you can't pound it flush. And so if you don't cut it off or damage it in some way, the person could just come back and put a nut and a hanger back on it. So if you want to be a completist, you got to, you got to saw them off at the rock if you can't pound them in. And if you And pitons too, if they don't come out, you got to cut them off. If you're also chopping bolts that are like power sleeve bolts, you know, then you need yeah. to angrily unscrew them. Yeah. <laughs> You need to get your torque wrench out and angrily take them out because that's the only way to do it. I know this because I've I've chopped my own roots. <laughs> Literally, I've 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 like given up on things and been like, all right, I got to get these bolts out of here. They're an abomination. This roots an abomination. Um, but only because of the, the lack of quality, not the la- not any sort of uh, any sort of moral come up. Not the lack of character. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, so the other thing I wanted to get into is that some of these roots were put up in this like kind of ground up style, it sounds like. And so they were placing mm-hmm. pitons, minimum amount of bolts. But I have a, a bit of a qualm with that. And I just feel like pitons are an obsolete tool in this context. Like if you're going to the Himalaya or something to do like some random route no one's ever going to do, you know, mm-hmm. bring all the pitons you want. But if you're just putting up rock climbs that people are going to go and repeat and love, why are you placing pitons? Well, in the piton defense, um, and I understand where you're coming from because because pitons are much, especially in an environment where there's a significant freeze thaw, which this place is because it's high altitude for Colorado. Pitons are are not like permanent fixed gear. They they will definitely loosen even over just a season. So. I understand like why they don't make sense, but I also understand that when you're when you're doing something like these guys were doing, which was according to the to uh the the choppers was you know crossing these ethical lines that had been established, then you you do do it in increments. And so, you know, even if those guys had in their heads the same thoughts you have, which is that oh, okay, these pitons are time bombs and we really should just put a bolt here. You know, we're we're gonna have that one foot in the in the old way here that we're gonna do pitons. But you know, sounds like these guys, if they had their had their way, probably agree with you in some ways, Andrew. But it's a way to sort of try to toe the line where you're minimizing bolts. We talked about um, these ethical issues in an, in a long bonus episode for our patrons. Which you can check out if you're a rope gun. But I think that. There's this Was that real... the F A or F U? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> there was an inflame, needlessly inflammatory headline for like a pretty like <laughs> normal conversation that we had, but but that's what gets that's what gets the clicks, Chris. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, what are, I guess where I was going with that was, yeah, we talked about this a little bit that there's 
the sort of swan song period in climbing right now, it, it feels like with first descent ethics in general, where the way that you do a route first is increasingly becoming less and less relevant. And it's more and more about serving an audience and serving a crowd and serving the people, you know, the many, many people who are taking the sport up and whether there's a mismatch between those first descent ethics that are meant to, by definition, just sort of raise the status and quality of the first ascent climber and give them a, you know, a riskier, higher quality experience, but don't necessarily serve the, the, the needs of all the people who follow after them. And so we talked about that in that episode, but I think that this conversation a little bit touches on this. It's, it is a, just another instance or example in climbing right now where there is this sort of cultural or ethical shift in the sport that we're kind of slowly seeing unfold where, you know, what is the point of doing routes in the most pure way, ground up or whatever? as a first ascensionist. And so I think a lot of this like argument comes down just to that alone. Well, I mean, what is the argument? I mean, if we laid it out, the the guys chopping it, you know, are trying to s- draw this ethical line in the sand, claiming or at least implying that, you know, this has been an extraordinarily uh sort of devout ground up area. And I, and you know, I don't I don't know the history of it. I usually find that those claims are easily debunked um, in most places where it's like people are like, this is a strict ground up area. And you're like, well, what about in 78 when they did this to that route? Or, well, that that one's different. But do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. it's not as like drawn in the sand as as people want to believe it is prior to this. But they they've drawn that line in the sand. They're they're pissed about um, the upcoming guidebook, which one of the the recipients of the chopping um, has authored. They're they're mad about that. They're mad about the the sort of dumbing down of the climbing, which they think will bring crowds. That's I think part of what I read in there. So these are and these are all like standard kind of old guy ethical concerns that go with these areas. Um, and then they have invoked as well our favorite uh, our favorite climbing. Uh, piece of uh, illegalese, which we, we're going to call what now again? What were we? What did we decide to call it? Oh, sorry, we're trademarking this, by the way. The backer Urian fallacy. Yes, the backer Urian fallacy. They have invoked invoked the backer Urian fallacy, which is that if they allow these bolts, and these are not like they didn't chop sport routes. These are these are mostly trad lines with with bolts here and there on on the unprotectable parts. If they allow those then who's going to stop the backer Urian from being bolted is and and they did not invoke the actual backer Urian, but they implied that somehow all the other runouts that are on the older climbs there would somehow cease to exist if we allowed non runout climbs to exist. Right. And that's, that's what we're calling the backer Urian fallacy is that if you allow someone to bolt something, then who's to stop them from just grid bolting everything until it's all just a big climbing gym. It's a slippery slope argument taken to yeah, the slippery the extreme. Slope. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Becker Urian fallacy. Yeah. TM. We're, we'll make t shirts of that at some point. <laughs> um, so, that seems to be the argument. Am I missing anything? I think that's pretty right. And, and um, the thing that you 
touched on, which I think is super astute, is that a lot of this comes down to the fact that one of these guys is writing a guidebook, um, which is the next thing I really wanted to get into about this, because Mm -hmm. who writes the guidebook is another one of these pissing territories that climbers, you know, love to gripe about and bitch about and argue about. And I don't really know what the clear answer is to that. Like, you know, the, (laughs) the person who, you know, goes into the woods and looks into a hat and sees the magical scrolls, like he should be the guidebook author. You know, Mm -hmm. it's basically as, as absurd as a lot of religious, you know, sentiment, you know, like stories and stuff. So, and, but that person has a, a lot of power and a lot of authority. And so I am sort of, you know, I I voiced my sympathies to the bolters who got their roots chopped just now, but I'm also voicing my sympathies to the choppers themselves and and their pushback on the, on who gets to write the guidebook because sometimes like people write guidebooks that you don't want the person to be the person writing the guidebook and they get to, they have a lot of power just by the fact that they get to, they're the person who has the most amount of time on their hands in order to basically copy what's on mountain project and put it into a a printed text form and, you know, add the flourishes that really define the culture of an area, which is like, this is a ground up place and only ground up climbing is allowed. Or this is like a, you know, whatever it is like X, Y, and Z, this is the, these are the ethics and these are the, my roots get four stars. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> my roots, my roots are good, and uh, and everyone else's roots suck. Um, you know, yeah. Well, and also, I mean, is there's, I mean, even the issue of like, usually a guidebook has a small two or three page history section, and with a place like Pikes Peak, that means the you know the sort of sin of omission is is you know extreme because mm-hmm. you're going to be like, well, what what gets put in and what gets left out of the history, and that's part of setting a culture of a place for people who are visiting. I think that's unfortunate. I I wish that I you know I'm I'm of the opinion that like climbing information should be open source. You know when it comes to finding roots and sharing information, and if there's a way to compensate the 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 people who are tirelessly doing the work of either just writing the descriptions of how to get to a place and what the roots are, or actually putting up the roots themselves, you know I I'd be in favor of like thinking about how we. Like what's a unique way of compensating people for that? But you know, like the the prize of being the guidebook author, and we've seen this in places like Ten Sleep, where there's competing guidebooks that offer different versions of reality and different visions of what the place is, and different grades and names for routes. And it's an interesting and fascinating you know conflict, but it's it's clearly not the the uh, the best way forward, or at least not the most intelligent way to do it. Yeah, but I mean, the reality of it is, is that, you know, oftentimes the guidebook author just is what you just said. It's like the person who suddenly the nexus of time on their hands, familiarity with the area, opportunity puts it into their lap. And and to push back against sort of like, why do you get to write the guidebook? You know, the obvious question is, is, well, you could have written it, you know, or, you know, it's like, you've been climbing there for how long? Why didn't you write the guidebook if it was so important to you kind of a thing? Because it always comes down to somebody who's fairly like obsessed, anoints themselves because like I said, there's sort of this nexus of time. And we know, I know plenty of people who have started guidebooks and they never got off the ground and they handed, 
all their shit over to somebody else because they just realized the task was too much for them. And so, you know, so it's kind of like both things where you got to give it to somebody who is going to do, I mean, you know, you can decide on the quality of the guidebook in the end, but you got to give it to somebody who's going to do it and, and put the time in and hike the cliffs and find the information and talk to the peoples. And, you know, if they do a really good guidebook and, uh, you know, so it's, it's like, there is no, you know, anointing. There is no like council of 12 that, you know, cho- choose their champion to go out into the guidebook world is the reality of it. It's just somebody gets obsessed enough, has the skills, you know, n- nowadays it involves having a ton of computer skills. And, you know, if you're some 70 year old dude who, who climbed P- at Pike's Peak for 30 years, it, it just may not be in your wheelhouse, you know? So aside from the fact that these uh, guys are probably not going to get a fair shake in the, in the history section of the new guidebook after chopping roots. Um, <laughs> this was a quote from this article that uh, Saren says. So I'll read it to you and you can respond. A guidebook is only going to bring more people. It's going to bring more crowds, more chalk, more social trails, and more trash. And there's something to be said for not giving out information and just letting climbers go out and cut their own teeth. Well, yeah, I got a lot. I mean... <clears throat> It's that's like a that's sort of like a philosophical argument, you know, this idea that that the guidebook itself becomes this this magnet to bring people to an area. Um, I tend to look at it the other way around as as a guidebook becomes viable when it's already serving a pretty large population. And the other thing that's that's interesting is that and that I kind of bristle against is that um, if Brad Saren that's the way he climbs elsewhere. If he doesn't, you know, go to Veda Vu and, and check out the guidebook. If he doesn't go to Indian Creek and check out the guidebook, if he doesn't come to rifle and check, if, if this is his area and it's the only place he climbs and that's how he, he operates, then, you know, he's got sort of this like ethical hill to stand upon. But it always kind of bothers me that, you know, somebody wants their area to remain this sort of secret cut your teeth area because they've climbed there long enough to know where all the roots are and have all the information at their fingertips. But if they travel to somewhere else and they're going to go ahead and pump everybody for information, look online, look at the guidebook. It's just, it's just real, like not in my backyard mentality. And, and, and I've, I've always felt that way. And I'm just like, you know what, this is the tide. And again, I think the guidebook generally serves the population that's there. It doesn't, you know, especially in this day and age with the with the internet being the first place you go. Most of the time you get the guidebook after you've decided that that's a place you want to actually climb a lot because, and you were introduced to it by looking online. I mean, the flame, which is, you know, one of the most famous routes in Pike Peak, we, you can find the flame by looking online, everybody, and, and figure out everything about it. So yeah, I just sort of push back against a little bit of that in terms of like, it's going to be this necessary catalyst. The catalyst is, is everything that's happening in climbing. That's the catalyst. The catalyst is, you know, thousands of people a day moving to Colorado and, and, you know, going into gyms and learning about rock climbing and looking up at Pike's peak from Denver and going, Oh, I heard there's rock climbing up there. You know, that those are the catalysts and listening the, to the, the right guidebook and knowing that there's sick climbing on Pike's peak. Yeah, exactly. Now we're on the shit list too. Yeah. We're going to get, you know, we're going to get like a goat's head nailed to our doors or something <laughs> after this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that, it goat's blood. What's the biblical thing? 
And I don't know, but anyway, the Godfather yeah. had a horse's head yeah. in the bed. Yeah, so. the horse's head yeah. too. Yes, yeah. so I'm going both. I'm going both cinematic and <laughs> biblical here with my analogy. <laughs> I just feel like, yeah, to echo what you just said, that the toothpaste is out of the tube, and you're not going to put it back in the tube by preventing a guidebook from being written. I mean, to your exactly what you said, people can find this information online. If they're so motivated to hike up a fourteen thousand foot peak to go climbing on, you know, <laughs> routes that they they found on Mountain Project, they will do that, and a right. uh, guidebook will not prevent them or sway them one way or another. This is yeah, about just, yeah. you know this yeah. is this is about like the legacy and defining the culture and defining the what the ground truth is and who has the say to say what is and isn't so and. It, it's and it's a fucking pissing match you know and mm-hmm. um it's an unflattering one and it's one that we've seen uh in the climbing world several times in the last few years you know most we talked about this with um ten sleep they fucking shut down all their roots you know right. over these stupid arguments that we're having and uh you know i think that that's a likely scenario for for pike's peak if this like continues in this fashion well, and the and the the interesting thing is to me, in having dealt with this uh, personally here on the Western Slope, is that you know while these guys, one of their other arguments that I actually failed to mention was that they have this idea that a proliferation of fixed gear will get the area closed, like the the um you know the land managers will will see these things in the rock and decide that that we've all gone too far. There is actually a, a little bit of precedence for that, but what's much more likely, especially with this at this point, is that when land managers get wind that climbers can't control themselves, can't deal with their problems together, and that people are out vandalizing, and that's the kind of words they'll use, vandalizing, destroying, you know, they're not going to say chopping because that's a very climby thing to talk about. They're going to say vandalizing things out in their wilderness or their forest or their land, that's what's going to put them on edge and walk in and be like, all right, guess what? Nobody gets to climb up here. And it's a classic thing I always say is like you tell, you you complain to the teacher and the teacher takes the ball away from everybody. And no, they didn't complain to the teacher, but the fact that this has, has, you know, risen to even the, even a small online presence, we we've seen it in rifle where land managers are watching forums and they and they they in these meetings and stuff they're pulling quotes from climbers off of like internet forums where you know to add to their argument so mm-hmm. in in the ten sleep thing was a classic thing the the forest services we don't really even get what the fuck you guys are doing up here or talking about, but somebody's damaging the rock okay well everybody nobody gets to climb on this shit, nobody's putting bolts in, nobody's doing anything for the time being. And that's like it happened here on the Western Slope recently in in a similar way. And it's just like the publicity and the seemingly immature ability to like deal with this stuff is what gets the area closed. So if the area gets closed, it's more the fact that these guys lit the fire that that went online. And and and, and it's just ironic because, you know, they consider themselves the defenders of the faith and, and it'll be them that gets it closed, frankly. It sounds like you might want to reconsider your initial strategy, Chris, about blowing me up on social media with your photos and videos when I'm chopping your root. Well, the reason I said that was because <laughs> of that, because that's your instinct. Right. Is you want to expose these guys, you know? 
Well, where does that leave us? I mean, I feel like the takeaway of this conversation is that we need to, if you're going to get into an argument, keep it quiet and resolve it yeah. yourselves. Yeah. Um, maybe consider replacing pitons with bolts. So more bolts, less arguments. I think that <laughs> that'll make everyone happy, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just like, this is the last, uh, I mean, it's unfortunate. And I, I, you know, I have this foot in this old world. I, I started climbing pre sport climbing and, you know, I ground up climbing was just climbing to me when I started climbing. I didn't know anything else. And not that I was some first ascensionist or some like ethicist. It's just what you did. You went to the cliff and you started climbing and, and, uh, I've lived through the whole thing. So I, I like, I have a sympathy for this feeling of like, I want this area to be the way it was when I started climbing here, but it's, it's just a death rattle of that. You're, it's, you know, you're going to go into, into, into sort of just being an angry person because chopping these roots, isn't going to stop it. Not publishing the guidebook, isn't going to stop it. It's all just coming. And I've had to deal with it. I've talked about it at length here on the Enorma cast. I've had to deal with it in Indian Creek, which is the place I've climbed the longest continually. And it's just like, yeah, you just have to accept it and look for like the slightly good parts. So the addendum to all of this is that the um, the Pikes Peak Climber Association put out this survey uh, to see what the people want and like what what do people want with these routes and I think it was like everyone can guess what they want yeah it was like seventy five percent or more were like put the bolts back in yeah and so it sounds like that's what they're going to do and of course it sounds like the choppers are um, calling fake news on these polls and uh decrying them as you know not uh not based on their sample size was there anything to say about the fact that like the chopping you know happened on roots that these guys couldn't sniff yeah i think that, that I, I you had just said I, all of that yeah. needs to be say, said about it <laughs> I mean, that is, it's an unflattering thing to say, and it's like maybe even a mean thing to say, but it's the true thing to say that a lot of this animosity comes with, um, you know, just an inferiority complex. And this is like a very, well, these, are, these to, are like to, very yeah. like male ego bullshit arguments that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Just, can we someone don't. Send an, can someone send an incident where a woman went out and chopped a root, please, <laughs> if that exists. Because this is so guy, this is so dude, and I, I don't know if I'm sounding sexist, but maybe someone can rush out, some woman out there who gets mad about this stuff too, can rush out there and chop a root. But I've never heard of it. I mean, because the reason I brought, I mean, I'm being Chris, a, I'm, Chris, I'm women being a, can be assholes too. I know they can. Oh yeah. god. <laughs> but the reason I'm bring, being a pissant here is because the one of the roots that I was involved in that got like this little you know, internet kerfuffle about it going to, that it was going to get chopped was the ivory tower on, on, uh, Castleton. Mm. And that was the same thing. I was just like, you know, and even since then, in the year since I'm like every single person who's gone up to climb that route has come back just like freaking out about how good it was all credit to Sam uh, Leitner who bolted it, saw the line. I, I just was involved. And, uh, you know, and that's just the thing is all the people that were ready to go up and chop it because we put bolts in on Castleton. There's bolts all over Castleton. There's actually a old bolt ladder like 
20 feet to the left of this thing. Nobody was like even willing to consider that it might be a good route because they couldn't go and climb on it at all. And yeah. without exception, the people that have climbed on it are like, this is an incredible line and it's awesome and it's well bolted and it's cool. You know, and it's just like this thing of like, you know, where the, the, the right comes out against this thing and it's like, well, did you read the book? Like, no, I don't need to read the book. I read the article about the book or whatever. So that, that's the, I mean, it's like a pissy thing to say, but that's the deal. It's like, they couldn't, they, they didn't climb the route. So they have no idea. I mean, like the, the deal is like, we just need to like get past these like kind of very immature arguments and it's not good for climbing. People are going to like, all of these areas are going to get shut down. You're not being the next John backer by putting your, you know, drawing these lines in the sand about what, what is and isn't acceptable. And so I think that's my takeaway from this, from this argument, but you know, of course, as always, I'm open to having my mind changed by, you know, Finding, goat head yeah finding a horse your door <laughs> finding a horse head in my bed <laughs> Peter Mortimer is an Emmy winning director and filmmaker from Boulder Colorado and the co-founder of the real rock tour his new film is the Alpinist a profile of the late Canadian soloist Marc Andre Leclerc the Alpinist opens in select theaters around the country this week. There's definitely a lot more interest in the mainstream in climbing stuff. And obviously Free Solo had a huge, huge part to do with that. You just see more commercials with climbers. You see more TV shows like TV series being picked. A lot of it is coming from general Hollywood producers who have turned their attention towards climbing. They're really interested in it. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know about the theatrical release. It's, it's kind of, you know, I think when the distributors planned this, COVID was on the decline. And obviously with the Delta variant and a lot of people not being vaccinated, it's like way back up now. So um, we'll see how it goes. Are know. you afraid that that's going to affect the uh the numbers or i don't know how you even uh, it will for films, sure yeah. yeah i mean it's affecting every single film that's out there like 100 percent. so but we'll see i mean i know they're doing like a on tuesday night they're doing um like a fathom one night simultaneous release across the country in like seven or eight hundred theaters they're selling a lot of tickets for that and then on friday it opens theatrically in i think like 200 theaters for a you know like a more typical run I really encourage people to see this in the theaters. I just sat and watched it at the Denver Film Society. And it's like fucking crazy to see in the theater. I actually was like, wow, this is amazing. Watching Marc-Andre Klein. Yeah, so The Alpinist is a film about Marc-Andre Leclerc, who's um, sort of this reticent free solo climber alpinist who who died a few years ago. But this is kind of a documentary about who he is and his life and how did you get interested in this subject, Pete? Why did you want to make a film about this reticent guy from Canada? Nick Rosen, my directing partner on this and many other films as well. And Nick and I had been hearing about Mark a little bit through climbing circles. Nick claims he heard about him first from Heavy Duty, who's the like unofficial mayor of uh, Squamish when Mark was like 18. I heard about him 
at a party in Boulder from like Jesse Huey and Matt Siegel and people were just like getting drunk and being like, dude, everyone you film with is cool. But like, there's a guy out there who's like blows everyone away and you'll, and like nobody knows who he is. Um, so that immediately was captivating to me as a, obviously as a documentary filmmaker and someone who loves this world of climbing and has, you know, been in it since I was really young and, just this notion that there was someone out there doing these incredible things that was completely off the radar. I mean, we all know that there's a lot of climbers like that, right? I mean, we all have them in our communities. And the stuff I was hearing about Mark was like truly next level, just the alpine soloing on a, on a grand scale. And he was young. I mean, he was, I think he was 22 when I met him and he'd already soloed the corkscrew and, um, and, and like, the the only I think only like the second ascent of Mount Slessy in the winter and the first solo ascent and the first ascent was like thirty years before or something. I don't have my facts exactly straight there probably. It was just this idea of the best climber out there nobody's heard of. And I wanted to go make a movie about him. And so we tried to track Mark down and it took a minute and we tracked him down through his girlfriend Brett Harrington and I went up to Squamish and just spent a couple days with those guys. We went to Whistler and went skiing and stuff. It was in the winter, just hung out. And like, you know, Mark had seen our films and he's like a real student of climbing history. He's read everything. So he was like, at the time, very little social media. He was just, you know, totally living the dirtbag life. And he was just super focused on his climbing. He wasn't necessarily opposed to the idea of filming or of like sharing what he was doing. I think there was a part of him that really liked that idea, but he just wasn't focused on it at all. So we kind of started filming with him and he let us in slowly. And, and then over the next kind of two, two and a half years, we were in and out filming with him. Yeah. I have a question about this idea of approaching these reticent below the radar people. I have the same issue with, with my show. You know, people are like, you got to talk to this guy. And I'm like, I don't know if that guy wants to talk, you know, kind of a thing. So, you know, we, we've got this old school mentality that exists in, in climbing where you're not supposed to talk about what you're doing. You know, you're supposed to go out and just do it for the love of the mountains with Mark Andre and also maybe in general because I'm sure you've run into this before as many people have you as you've approached about filming do you have like a, a strategy in your head or are you just playing to each person to try to figure out how to open them up like you just mentioned that you thought that he had a a part of him that wanted to be be on film but I've always wondered about that of how a director like you gets a subject like that to open up um, if you just jump on that small part of them and try to kind of nurture it. I mean, I love that about, I, I mean, to me, it's so appealing. I'm sure Chris, for you it is mm-hmm. too, like getting to talk to someone who's, who's just, you know, no media training. They're not varnished. They're not like, they don't know what they're, they're just doing their thing. And I mean, to me, it's the best. I think it's so individual. I mean, climbers mm-hmm. are such individuals and just the way you approach it and, I was just talking to a climber yesterday who we're working on a film with, who's also like totally out of the mainstream spotlight. And I was like, dude, what's going on? Like, I feel like you're, you don't want to work with us. And, and we were kind of dancing around it. And then he was like, he's like, man, I just like, I've got some like corporate stuff going on. And I don't want to just like blow my image by like doing something, you know, like showing this other side of me. And I was like, Oh, that's, I hadn't, 
thought about that at all, you know? And then we, once we could kind of talk about that, I think, you know, we, he got comfortable. He's like, cool, you, you get it and stuff. So everyone, everyone's just got their, you know, their angle. And then I think just as a climber, who's like so in control of your, of what you do and how you spend your time and your vision and the stuff you're doing to, to kind of turn over your story to somebody else. And with us, it's like, once we capture that footage, like we have the footage and then, you know, a lot of the storytelling happens in the editing room. And, you know, we always go out and get third party interviews to sort of give, give an outside context and stuff. So I, I think it's a, it's, I, I can imagine it's a really scary releasing of control to, to like let us into your lives and like kind of trust, you know, they just kind of trust us. So this film is coming out obviously in a fairly significant shadow of uh, Free Solo, which, you know, was an Oscar winning film and so forth and got tons of attention and was awesome film. Chris and I've talked about that endlessly on this show. How did you approach making a film about a, another free soloist given that, you know, this genre of soloists exists and how do you see the Alpinist kind of fitting into uh, or maybe adding something different to the conversation around this topic in, within climbing? So we actually filmed all the footage in this before free solo came out. And so it was kind of like we were, just working on at, at a parallel time. It wasn't, I mean, obviously that film has, has such a big, everyone who's going to see this film will have seen that film. And, and it's, it is so related to subject matter. Honnold is, you know, an important talking head in this film. And he knew Mark really, you know, he and Mark really respected each other. So I think they're just different characters. You know, they're really different people. And, and, in different places in their lives too. When they, when we captured them, this film is probably more similar to some of the early stuff we shot with Honnold, like when he first did Half Dome and stuff and just wasn't, hadn't really figured out his, um, just where he fit in to the whole thing. And then, you know, obviously just from a climbing standpoint, you know, Alex talks about this in the film, but Mark's climbing in the Alpine environment. So it's really different. You know, there's a lot more objective hazard. There's a much wider skill set as far as, you know, ice climbing, mixed climbing, having a really deep understanding of the mountain. I think one of his great lines in the movie says, you know, the mountains are alive all around me and I'm like interacting with them. And I think, you know, like Alex says in the movie that Mark has a really different approach to climbing. I want to say spiritual, but he just, he was not, he was just like, really in it for the adventure and the exploration and the sort of almost like seeking out this purity and not that Alex isn't, but I just think Alex is less ruffled by everything going on around it. And Mark like really wanted to be out there by himself, like on the biggest, wildest adventure. He was trying to climb on site. He was trying to, you know, like find objectives that put every thing he had to the test. And he was, he was really on this quest to do that. So I have a question that kind of endlessly fascinates me in terms of talking to filmmakers like yourself. And you've filmed or uh, been involved in filming Free Solos before. You talked about Honnold's, you know, been a subject of yours. I've, I've, I've talked to Mikey Schaefer about this. You know, I've heard uh, Jimmy Chin talk about it. But, you know, what are your, if any, quandaries about filming soloists and and also when you're when you're in the moment 
what is it like to have that part of your brain thinking like, what could go wrong here? Obviously, when you're filming climbing, anything can go wrong. But is today a day I'm going to end up filming someone falling, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, how do you approach sort of, I think people have called, questioned the morality of it in a way, which I don't really want to get into too deeply because I don't necessarily agree with it if the, you know, the subject is a consenting adult, as it were. But, uh, but how do you approach it in your head when you've got the camera on something that's probably making you shit scared, even if it's not making the subject scared? I mean, I think there's two things. I think one is working with someone who you feel like you're not affecting, like you're not influencing them. But like Honold, yeah. Dean Potter, Uli Steck, Steph Davis, Mark. I mean, these you you guys, I'm sure know these people like they've got their vision and their thing and you realize pretty quickly that they're in charge and you're, you're fitting in and there's mm -hmm. not a, there's not a, um, I just, I, I, I think I'm asking that question as I'm building relationships with these people. It's like, do I feel comfortable with this? Do I feel like I'm, and I have filmed with someone who I felt really, really uncomfortable with who was doing dangerous stuff and then just pulled back from that was like this that felt like that felt just like gross and weird and um you know mark is so in that category of, of people i mean pretty immediately you realize like this guy's on his path and he's gonna call the shots and he's gonna let you in when he wants to as far as actually filming it and the thought that someone could fall i mean you'd be naive to to not know that that's a possibility and so that's in your head and then you do everything you can to do it as safely as possible. I mean, you kind of, then you have a choice. Do you want to do this or not? And like, do you think this is worth filming and sharing and, and telling this story or, or not? And, you know, I think I'm, you know, we're some of the few people who are uniquely positioned to, to do this. And I think it's incredible what they're doing. I mean, I've climbed since I was like 13 and, you know, I'm not a free soloist. I have a terrible head and I have like intense fascination with these people who are able to do it. And so I think, you know, once you're doing it, you just, you be as safe as possible, you know, with Mark, like one of the big strategies was surrounding, like our team on the wall was people he climbed with, you know, or he really respected and who were really comfortable in the Alpine. So, you know, like when I was there, I was either on the ground or, or to the side, cause I'm just not at that level as a climber and, so like John Walsh, I don't know if you guys know John Walsh, you know, he's a mountain guide and a fucking total badass climber from Canmore. He was rigging on everything we shot up there. And then John Griffith and Austin Syedak and stuff, you know, so we're set up and we're, you know, just trying to be flies on the wall. When Mark's climbing, he's so in his bubble. I think that's what I love about some of the footage you see. He's, you know, in these spectacular positions, but he's so focused on the details, like, you know, brushing the dust off the hole before he's going to put his cramp on, like on a, you know, non-existent edge. So we, as long as we can be out of the way and just be there, then I think it's, you know, that's as good as you can feel about it and hope that nothing happens. Um, and then there's moment. It's funny because with Mark and a lot of these guys like Alex too, they're so comfortable. Like you're just, fucking terrified and they're so comfortable up there and so the like there's this great disarming moment that's not in the film but in our footage where mark's like 250 feet up a waterfall and 
John Griffiths at the top. He's kind of filming him. And, and then Mark like looks at him. He's like, you want me to do a figure four? And Jonathan's like, what? 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 What the? And Mark says, just kidding. And Jonathan's like, oh my God, you're a sick right. man. Um, the footage, so, yeah, is, I mean, the footage is palm sweating and uh, really gripping, and just kind of you either I don't know what what the reactions you've heard from people who, who uh, when they see you know like I think we've all been experienced to obviously the the sort of stomach churning free solo rock climbing footage from seeing so many Alex Honnold videos, but the to see a guy like placing ice tools on rock and then switching into you know using his hands and. It's it's unnerving on a different level, um, <laughs> and just like yeah, it has this different uh, bit of anxiety to it because it just seems so sketchy and insecure. Yeah, and I think with alpinism, it's interesting because it gets out of the realm of sport a little bit. Like I think when you watch someone rock climbing, there's these like like free soloing. There there there's still an athlete performing. Right. And like with Alex, a lot of the stuff is that like the really high end stuff is rehearsed. Right. And so he's got these techniques and he can. And I think with alpinism, it's just like, you know, someone standing at the bottom of the mountain being like, I'm going to go climb that mountain with just whatever, just with nothing, you know, with my ice tools and crampons. It's more in the realm of like human exploration. It's almost like, watching someone sail through a storm or something, right? It's just like, you don't know what's coming. And in some ways it's more disarming, I think, because they seem more vulnerable. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to explain that, but it's just, it's just more of a, like, it's, it's just, it seems wilder to me. You know, I, I don't think I'm giving away any spoilers here. When I say that Mark Andre, of course, passed away in 2018, I think, um, he died descending in Alaska avalanche likely was the cause of death. His death adds an interesting element to this film because I, I don't know. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on what you think, how this changes the story, because it seemed as though you were almost done with this film, basically right around the time that he died. And, you know, here we are three years later and it came out. So what was the creative process for you to go back and sort of rejigger the film and analyze it in um, now that you had this new tragic ending uh, to build up toward. Yeah. So when the accident happened in Alaska, we had been filming with Mark for two years and we had edited most of the film together. And we felt like we captured this special moment in time in this climber's trajectory. Like he went, I mean, when he does Tori Yeager, he's like, everything I've been doing has been leading up to this. Like, you know, even the emperor face and stuff just for the scale, you know, and we had the ending to the movie and we had, um, we had raised a lot of the questions, you know, we'd interviewed a lot of people about like, you know, there were some really prominent climbers and alpinists in Canada who were concerned about how, how far Mark was pushing it so fast. So we'd kind of addressed all that. And then Josh Lola and I were actually going to the premiere, the U S premiere of the Alpine of the, the Dawn wall at South by Southwest. And I got a call that Mark was missing in Alaska. So I went there and yeah, so we, you know, it became, you know, a, a hopeful rescue 
for, you know, there was just a terrible storm up in Juneau and everyone was kind of up there for a week. And, you know, it became clear that, you know, we found their ropes buried and it became clear they didn't, there was no survival scenario. And I think like, I mean, we had, we had gotten close, really close to Mark and really close to his mom and Brett and, you know, some of the core climbers up in Squamish who we already knew from, from way back. And I think it was, we just stepped away from it a little bit and just were like, just not thinking about the film for a little bit. There was, there's just a lot of talk with his friends and family. And they really, really, there became this added onus for us to tell Mark's story. Cause I think at that point, everyone knew like he was so special and nobody knew about Mark and he was gone. And I mean, his mom was like, was like, looked me in the eyes and was like, you, it's up to you. Like you have this footage, like you captured this time in his life and you have to do it. So we went back into the edit room after a few months and we kind of looked at what we had and like, we didn't change it much, you know, but then we added the ending because we, that I think was, is, you know, the grief and the people who are left, left kind of dealing with it after, you know, someone who's so beloved passes away at 26 years old, 25 years old is, um, you know, I think that's an important part of the story. Pete, I'm going to offer a bit of critique of the film and I'll let you respond uh, to it. You know, I'm a, uh, uh, an enthusiastic critic it. of your work um and it's only because I, <laughs> I respect you guys so much and you do such awesome awesome work but one of the aspects of the film that initially bugged me um as i was watching it was in the first you know half of the film you kind of set up two different ideas one is that you speak of free soloing and these kind of risk-taking endeavors that climbers engage in and in these transcendental terms as if there's like some kind of special knowledge or you know special heightened experience and it's all kind of romanticized in a certain way and the other trope that you dabble in in the film is you explicitly you know wrestle with the question of why why do we do these things why why would anyone take such arguably stupid risks. And, um, you know, you kind of ask Mark Andre that directly and he, he gives a very unsatisfying answer the way that most people who do these things are prone to do, you know, it's like, you know, Oh, it's really fun or it's really engaging or it's the coolest thing or they, no one can really articulate exactly why, why this is worth it. And, um, the film you know, I don't know if it ever, it, it maybe answers that in some ways. And in, and in other ways, it's always this open-ended question. But all of that sort of, you know, flowery language and rhetoric around, you know, this being this transcendental romantic experience is really tempered by the ending in which he dies. And, you know, that's, I think, makes this film so much more realistic and so much more powerful because, it, it doesn't get a, pa a free pass the way it doesn't, you know, something like Free Solo or other films or uh, just other stories about this. So I don't know. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that conversation and if if you've gotten any closer to that answer of why these people do what they do and if there is any kind of responsibility that we have in terms of how we talk about it and the language we use and uh, giving it these romantic words to describe something that's like really quite dangerous. 
that's a great insight. It's funny. It's something we discussed a lot about how to sort of, we set out all these ideas and these questions and then how do you answer them? And obviously I narrate the films and, you know, I'm kind of interviewing people like Ryan Holden at Mesner and, you know, sort of trying to get to the, the source of this. The question I think really is like at the end of the film, like how do we feel about it at that point? Right. And what's the answer to that? And I think the film shifts from idealism and ideas to a story about a person and a story about a guy and you get to watch him do this thing. And so we had some of my narration kind of being like trying to wrestle with it at the end. And it just felt, it felt dehumanizing in the end. It's like, we've set out these questions, this, these ideals. And here's an example of someone who's completely taken by these ideals and who's like living it to the extreme. And then you can kind of decide for yourself if you think it's, if that was worth it or not, you know, (laughs) just being around Mark and watching the film, like it makes me, it makes me believe in it all more, honestly, like kind of more so than being around anyone else. Like I like, I totally, I believe in it and I want to do it. And it makes me want to think about the things that hold me back. And just like simplify my life and like focus on the things I really want to do, you know, but I would be a hundred percent understanding if someone walked out of the film and was like, that's fucking complete bullshit. And that guy should have scaled it back and, you know, taken more manageable risk and, um, look at the devastation he left in his wake. And, you know, I mean, I think that's an acceptable thing. I mean, I think the fact that, the people closest to him, his mom and I mean, his whole family and Brett and his climbing partners and stuff were like, he couldn't have, he couldn't have lived any other way. So I don't know if I'm answering the critique. <laughs> no, you did. And, and I, I would just add on to that, that I think that the way that you left it open-ended in that way. It's an honest approach with a lot of integrity because my wife, Jen watched it with me and she, she had that reaction after watching the film, like that kind of negative, why are we like celebrating this? I came away from it and unsure how to feel. And I like that you, you didn't answer the questions for us and and it kind of allows you to see what you want to see, which I think is, is powerful. And it also is, it is the most honest answer to this question because there is no answer to it. it. It's very, it changes over time. It's very personal. And, and I don't actually know. I mean, given that how many interviews have you done with some of these folks, you know, have you heard ever heard like a really satisfying answer? It, it, I don't know. I, I'd let you answer that. But it, in my experience as a journalist, I just have never heard one. And I think it, I think that's part of the, that speaks to the romanticism of it is that, we don't actually know why we do these things, but we, for some reason, we continue to do them. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the closest <clears throat> stuff to me that, that resonates is it's not answering it directly. It's pretty amazing hearing Mesner, you know, wax poetic about it all and stuff. But I think the closest stuff is when Mark goes back and, you know, re reclimbs Robson with us and talks about his relationship with the mountain and how it talks to him. And that to me is, it's such a deep connection and it's so, um, 
it is just so moving and 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 spiritual to me and it's so much deeper than the way most of us are interacting with whatever environment we're in and i'm just like i get it like without him telling me why why he does it or why it's worth the risk or how he it's just like i get i get this path that he's on i guess what i would I was thinking about just now is the the world that you've covered, Pete, a lot of the characters are, of course, dead now. And especially in the Alpine world, this last, you know, five years or six years has been, seems like a lot of the 35 and under crowd is, has, is gone. And yeah, you're kind of remarking on just how different climbing is and how it's changed. And what are you seeing now in terms of people who were, you know, doing the kind of risky things that you're drawn to as a storyteller? Do you see people pursuing that? Or is this kind of just like a passe thing at this point? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm drawn to risky things as a storyteller. I'd say it's one. I mean, if you look at all the films we've done, that's probably 15 or 20% Hmm. of the films are that I mean, I love, you know, like, you know, we made Black Ice last year. And like, that was, you know, as rewarding to work on a film like that, or like, you know, the United States of Joe's and talking about, I mean, there's, I think, I just think what's cool about climbing is there's so many different aspects of it. And, you know, like making a film about Adam Ondra, about like one of the most incredible athletes of our generation, I guess it's not our, of his generation. So I, you know, obviously people talk more about the risky stuff and it gets, you know, so it ends up becoming the centerpiece of the conversation. If we have four or five films on real rock and one of them is about Honnold doing something that's generally tends to be the one that people talk about, you know? Um, so I think, you know, the climbing world is so, it's just, it's so multifaceted now in a way we never could have imagined. And I think that's awesome. You know, it just gives us, there's so many stories for us to, to tell and so many different angles and, you know, I think our biggest thing is like, especially with Real Rock doing an annual tour of climbing films is just like how to be surprising and unpredictable. And um, it's funny because every time we do a film that like kind of catches people off guard, like United States of Joe's was, was a good one. You know, then we get pitched like 25 or 30 stories about like, dude, there's this like community climbers working together over here in this place and stuff. It's like, yeah, we got to like find that, that, that story that, that you're not expecting from us, you know? And I mean, I think doing stuff about, you know, the, the more adventure side of climbing is, is definitely in the repertoire. And I think the very few people who pursue that are tend to be really fascinating and the stuff they're doing is spectacular, but it's, I wouldn't say that's like, um, you know, like just the well that we keep just like dipping from. How about, uh, have you ever thought about like, uh, story about an aging podcaster <laughs> watching his performance slip away late to life father just like you know basically hardly ever climbs anymore so, have you ever thought about that story that'd be pretty surprising <laughs> it, 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 the problem with that one is it, it hits too close to home <laughs> substitute podcaster for filmmaker Oh man, <laughs> the saddest movie sad. has ever made. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. That's when like your wife stands up at the end and is like, "It's a fucking waste of his life, man. What was he doing? He, he did, why did he? Why didn't he take more risk?" 
<laughs> you know, when you started this project and then what it became after after uh, Marc Andre died, you know, you're you're treading into like climbing sacred ground and and you you and and your company and the years you've been doing real rock and everything else you're you're a real pillar of what we call climbing culture i think i mean you you're part of it in a very very deep way um your connection to the climbing community is very very deep you're personally a climber and yet you've you know wanting to show this film to the world is is a noble sort of uh you know pursuit but are you or were you trepidatious about just you know sharing this very personal very inside the culture again very sacred kind of story with with the mainstream uh, i think climbers can have you know sort of we feel like we have ownership over not only the stories but the people and we we i bristle at the dumb reactions you know from the outside media especially when it comes to you know, trying to answer that very question you were just talking about when, you know, the reaction is just going to be like, dude, sick, or like, you know, oh, that guy was an idiot. You know, those kind of reactions, like, I don't even like to read them because I, I get sort of pissed off. I mean, so I guess my question is like, you as a climber, you as this pillar of climbing community and culture, was there some trepidation at all in terms of like, I'm going to, you know, I'm, we're going to really bang this thing out to the to the mainstream world theatrical release the whole thing i mean success aside uh what about revealing that story to people and having to answer these questions to people who are are not asking the right question if you will um not not no i would say okay. not really i mean i think I do, I do think that what mark the way mark approaches alpinism transcends climbing and i think it is I mean, the stuff I think, and Andrew, you've written about this a lot, like in a really great way. Like, you know, when people are like, don't understand the technical terms and the logic of it and like what's going, they're freehanding up there, you know, and just like trying to talk the climbing lingo and stuff. I think that that is kind of like the most cringeworthy stuff. <laughs> I just think what Mark is doing is just like, he's just looking up at like some of the most, you know, insane natural features on planet earth and being like, I'm going to go up there. And it's just, I think it transcends climbing. And then I think as far as what people get out of it, I mean, there's been a ton of reviews and stuff and I, I haven't seen anything that's like, I haven't seen anything that's made me like, feel like, Oh God, this is, you know, they just completely took the wrong thing out of it and stuff. And we spent a lot of time in the film, like really going into Mark's motivation and his background and, you know, like what, his journey to get to doing what he's doing. And, um, and I always love seeing what people get out of. <laughs> I mean, that's like one of the joys, you know, obviously we love, you know, our like, especially with real rock and stuff, like the climbing community is like the core of who we're talking to and making these films for it. But I love, I always love seeing the reaction beyond the community. I mean, it just, it always tickles me. And then even like talking about the climbing community now, I mean, like, the three of us are old. We've been at it a long time. And the climbing community is completely different than mm -hmm. what we were talking about 25 years ago. I mean, it's like literally not even <laughs> the same. <laughs> you know, I don't think all like my friends and stuff that I 
climbed with and who were like, you know, part of my early films, like Front Range Fruits and Scary Faces and stuff. Like a lot of them aren't, don't, you know, I don't think they even watch my films <laughs> anymore, right. you know? And so I think, um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I love just like seeing that. And I always learn something just like from a storytelling, like a, a filmmaking perspective, you know, I'm like, oh, I didn't expect, I didn't expect that, you know, but with Mark, like with this film, there's not a ton of filmmaking, right? It's like, you know, we, we captured, it's almost like a nature documentary. Like we captured this like elusive, you know, person and we put it out there and we did some interviews. I mean, honestly, there's not like, you know, the storytelling is like, you know, we get into the meta narrative because, you know, we felt like that was like the fact that Mark just bailed on us for like months on end and went out and did these incredible things was like one of the best ways of capturing what Mark was about in a way that he could never tell you on camera. And you could just tell people, yeah, like instead of people saying like, yeah, he's just like doing it for the right reasons and stuff. It's like, he's actually literally bailing on us. So I, you know, I think that aspect of storytelling we brought in there, but in the end, like the, what, I mean, I just watched the film twice and, you know, with audiences and it's just Mark. You know, I mean, I just think he's an incredible person. And, and when he's just like awkwardly trying to explain what he's doing and stuff, you know, I just, I, I love having him out there as an example. If you want to support the podcast and get great bonus material as well, such as our recently published Ask Me Anything, or our deep analysis of the Iger sanction and its embarrassing sexist and perhaps racist legacy, or the Celebrity Deathmatch episode where we pit Momoa against Leto, or even the old stone master himself, John Long, reading his own work. Well then, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. We rely entirely on listener support to not only run the runout, but for our own self-worth as humans, too. The runout is a rudderless vessel on an ocean of spray without you. On today's final bit, listener Aaron Glassnap recounts his experience of the 2017 total solar eclipse as he and 50 of his closest friends viewed it from the top of the Grand Teton in Wyoming. You can see Aaron's film of the event by clicking on the link in our show notes. Two minutes, 13 seconds. A short by Aaron Glassnap. The Apocalypse. That's the meme that started floating around in the summer of 2017, leading up to the total solar eclipse of August 21st. The hype grew, as did the anticipation of a mass migration larger than any that had ever been seen. Like everybody else, I wanted to witness this rare event. As a climber, I was naturally drawn to the summit of the iconic Grand Teton, placing me directly in the middle of the path of totality. This would surely be the most spectacular viewpoint on the planet from which to see this eclipse. This was not just an opportunity of a lifetime. This was an opportunity of a millennium. The last total solar eclipse to pass over the Grand Teton was in 1878. While there is some dispute over the first ascent, 
The widely accepted first ascent was in 1898, 20 years after that eclipse. Regardless, it is certainly a fact that no human had ever stood on top of the Grand Teton and witnessed a total eclipse. After 2017, the next time the moon will cast its shadow on the Grand will be in the year 2397. Two days before the eclipse, we drove north from Denver, hoping to beat the hundreds of thousands of people who were expected to do the same. After a long drive, we checked in at the Grand Teton Climbers Ranch. Anticipation and anxiety were high about the impending influx of spectators. We had no idea how many other people would try to reach the summit, but we had been planning the logistics for nearly a year, and we felt as prepared as we could be. With cloudy weather being the biggest threat to our mission, we were relieved that the forecast showed mostly clear skies. We packed our bags and began the beautiful hike up Garnett Canyon. A few hours later, we set up camp, and after a restless half-night of half-sleep, hoping to avoid the bottleneck where the technical climbing begins, we woke up at 3 a.m. to begin the scramble from the lower saddle to the summit. Around sunrise, we had only seen two other parties, but far down in the valley below, we saw a long line of headlights leading up to the park entrance. The mass migration was in progress. At the start of the belly crawl pitch, so named because there is a narrow slot along which you can either hand traverse or squeeze through the slot on your belly, we were, surprisingly, alone. We climbed the technical pitches and reached the summit around 8.30 a.m. As people began to show up on the summit, an excited buzz grew and grew. We all shared our stories of where we had come from, and we were all instant friends by nature of having decided to be here, at this place, at this time, for this eclipse. First contact, which marks the beginning of the partial eclipse, happened at 9.16. There was nothing remarkable about first contact. Using eclipse glasses, we looked at the sun and saw the moon take an increasingly larger and larger bite out of the sun. But the real excitement began a few minutes before second contact, which is the moment that the moon fully covers the sun. About 10 minutes before that moment, the light started to shift slightly. It wasn't dark yet, but an almost eerie texture seems to fill the air. The temperature began to drop. Looking east, the sky began to grow dark. In a couple short minutes, the 50 people on the summit began to shout and point as an intensely black and monstrous entity grew on the horizon. The sight of the 70 mile wide shadow of the moon from our elevated vantage point moving towards us at 1700 miles per hour across the landscape is a sight I cannot accurately describe, nor will I ever forget. 11.34 and 53 seconds. The moon's shadow touches us. There are shouts, there are tears. Somebody yells, look at the sky, look at the sky. We all rip off our eclipse glasses and look skyward. If the moon's shadow from afar is a breathtaking and indescribable sight, then the sight of the sun's corona, perfectly silhouetted by the pitch black disk of the moon, is otherworldly. The radiating white light has a silky quality unlike anything I had ever seen. The horizon in all directions is glowing. 
our shadows disappear. The planet Venus emerges as the sky becomes nearly as dark as night. For two minutes and 13 seconds, the world is transformed. Third contact, the last moment of the total eclipse. The back end of the moon's shadow passes us by, continuing its march across the country. We watch the shadow go as quickly as it had come. Somebody says, guys, we won the eclipse. I know that millions of people saw the eclipse, and I know that it was spectacular from wherever you saw it, but I couldn't help feel as if we had, in some sense, won the eclipse. We packed up our gear and began the long descent. As we hiked further and further away from the Grand, I recalled a well-known quote by author René Dumas. You cannot stay on the summit forever. You have to come down again. So why bother in the first place? Just this. What is above knows what is below, but what is below does not know what is above. One climbs, one sees, one descends, one sees no longer, but one has seen. There is an art to conducting oneself in the lower regions by the memory of what one saw higher up. When one can no longer see, one can at least still know. You've just completed another episode of The Runout, a podcast from the sharp end of climbing. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and I run Evening Sends, the only climbing website on the internet. And I'm Chris Kalous, host of the Enormacast, the only other climbing podcast. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line, let us know what you think. My email is andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is chris at runoutpodcast.com. And also, please support our show. Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. Mm-hmm.